0: So I think about Arweave as a corollary to that because people need storage, right? We are interested in the utility and helping people have that data sovereignty and learn the skills. And it's interesting that Sarcophagus, you were saying, uses Arweave. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about that project and your capacity there and some of the use cases, if that's cool.
1: Absolutely. My capacity with Sarcophagus, I've been working with those guys for a couple of years now through the V1 launch and testing for that. And now we're like ramping up testing for V2 and launching that. But my, I've always, I've been doing the community management now for a while, and just building around the community, helping with events, hosting AMAs, stuff like that. And I've learned a ton along the way, like about Ethereum, about Arweave. These guys have practically turned me into an Arweave maxi. You're tuned
0: to the Rcast, where we talk about the blockchain on the Rcast, and how your data remains it's the Rcast, where Ardrive is the topic, censorship resistant permanence. Yeah, we got it. Hey friends, welcome to the Rcast episode thirty. What? Happy 2023. It's your host, Andrew. The REO team just got back from CES. We met a lot of really interesting people, saw some great talks. Shout out to the props team. We had a meetup on Saturday and a shout out to the community members who came out to hang out with us. It was great. We're going to be at ETH Denver. We're going to be at South by Southwest. So stay tuned for more exciting action. This week, we talked to Johnny and Johnny got his start living off the land in Montana. He got into blockchain. He got into community management. He talks about how he got involved with sarcophagus and why are we is so exciting. So this interview is great because I met Johnny in real life at the Portland REO meetup and uh, he's a cool dude. So let's jump into it. This is our interview with Johnny Ringo on the Rcast. Welcome to the r episode 30. We've got Johnny Ringo, JR, here to talk about sarcophagus and a lot of the really exciting projects he's working on in the R-Weave world and beyond. Johnny, thank you for being on the Rcast. How are you doing? Oh, great, great. We got to meet up in real life in Portland at one of the RIO R-Drive community events. And you came out and we had fun at, what was that place in Portland? Do you remember? It
1: was the Road Brewery. I don't remember which one specifically here in Portland, but I remember it was the Road Brewery. I had a few beers that night.
0: <laughs> yeah. So you first linked with with Jonathan, right? Yeah. Or how did you first link with the team?
1: Through Anthony? I was talking to him on, I think it was an R drive. And he was like, yeah, this next week we're busy because we're all going to be meeting in Portland. And I was like, Portland? Yeah, I'm here, man. All right, let's do this. So that was just how that came together. Was, it was totally on something else. And then he was like, yeah, we're meeting in Portland. I was like, oh, where? I'm gonna be there. And that was just kind of how that happened. Real, real cool coincidence there. That is, yeah, that is super random. Like
0: the cool thing about the Arweave community is that it's all over the world. It's like literally very decentralized. And so it's fun to meet people in real life. And it's when little things like that happen. It's awesome. Like when I had a guest on the R who was in San Francisco for an event, just like the next week randomly. So I got to meet up with him. So that was cool. Yeah, man. So like you, okay, your story, you were telling me a really interesting story, like about your background. So you, before you got involved with sarcophagus and helping with community management and everything in that world, you had a different kind of life, right? Before crypto. Blockchain.
1: I did. List, yes. can we talk about it? Oh, sure. Yeah. My life, I'm not dabbling here either, but I grew up as what most people refer to as an extremist. My family were survivalists. Like we lived in Montana, we lived in the mountains. There were even parts of my childhood where we had minimal electricity and utilities and stuff. Like, I grew up growing gardens and really living off the land and learning to survive in extreme conditions and stuff. So it's funny when that seems really unrelatable to blockchain, but part of that childhood and growing up that I had was this really severe desire for freedom and sovereignty. That was something that my parents really always wanted and a lot of reason why they lived off grid, completely off grid. And so with that, as I got older and kicking against the pricks a little bit growing up, I was like, man, this whole not being a part of society whatsoever thing, it just doesn't work all that well. It's really hard for someone at 18 years old to try and live that way. I got a normal job and started integrating with stuff. And I I did some really like unique jobs. Like I was a commercial crab fisherman, like the stuff on Deadliest Catch and did all sorts of stuff. And then at one point I started getting into the tech world. I don't know, four or five years ago, started really getting a little more into tech and realizing that this was where like the majority of careers are headed at this point. Most of the careers are gonna matter in the future. A lot of them are getting digitized in some way, whether it's at work from home environments, stuff like that, and I heard about this concept where, oh, people are building these computers and they're earning money passively with them. And I was like, what is this? This was back in 2017. And my wife actually was the one who introduced me to it. And I ended up building mining rigs and stuff. And that was my introduction to Web3 and crypto back in 2017 was building mining rigs. I actually made like a little business out of it called the Raven's Nest. And I built Ravencoin mining rigs. And I did that for a couple of years. And then this, last having cycle with Bitcoin, right before the Polkadot launch, I was on Facebook a little bit more at the time. The job I had, I was working at Intel as an engineer and we had long lunch breaks. So on my lunch break, I'd sit there and serve Facebook because I was night shift. So I couldn't talk to my wife or anything. And one night I got the idea that I was like, oh, I'm going to fire up this Facebook group for Polkadot. This was in August of 21, I think. And Polkadot hadn't launched their token yet, or maybe it was 20. I'm trying to remember which year it was now, but but they hadn't launched their token yet. So I created this Facebook group and within six months it exploded because Polkadot got popular. And as of now, and even then, it's the largest social network for Polkadot, this group that I created back then. And that kind of blossomed into just meeting people, being, having that huge social network on Facebook of all things, blossomed into meeting people. And I ended up meeting Zach, who was one of the founders and original builders of Sarcophagus. And they, at the time they hadn't launched their V1 yet. They hadn't launched anything quite yet. And they were looking for someone to help with just getting a community going. And they saw the Polkadot community and what I've been doing. And they're like, obviously you have some kind of skill in this because you put this Community with 85,000 people together. So, you know, let you want to take a shot at this. And I was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And um, that was really the start of my career in Web3, like the real start of it, because at that point I went from just doing like mining and little bits of hobby things to like really diving into like how contracts work on Ethereum. And then and I got introduced to Arweave at that time as well, because even the earliest designs all relied on Arweave storage. But yeah, like I got introduced to Arweave and Ethereum both at the same time as when I was like really jumping into this as a career and ended up going full time about 10 months later. And I've been full time in Web three cents. That is
0: cool. That is wow. What a story. So your parents raised you in part in Montana off the grid. Where in Montana? Or was it just remote away from everything?
1: Uh, the closest like knowable town that we were by was called Butte. And If you've ever been through Montana, you've probably heard of Butte because they have a big festival there every year and a lot of people show up there. It's really just a big drinking fest. Like that town, I don't have very fond (laughs) memories of Butte, Montana, to be honest, but but it's where I grew up.
0: (laughs) A lot of Irish people settled in Montana.
1: Yes. Yes. Yes, that whole town, that whole area is all Irish Catholic descent. They're all from that 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 original. The miners and everyone who settled that. A lot of them were Irish, yes,
0: the miners. And it's interesting how, yeah, like to be off the grid in a place like that where brutal winners, <laughs> far away from everything like that really taught you, To be self-sufficient, that's something your parents instilled in you. Yes, yes. So do you think that being a community manager and being able to communicate like you have some skills you learned with like, uh, presumably you had to have good teamwork with your family because you relied on each other, right? Growing up.
1: Definitely. I actually, I don't know so much about like the social skill stuff. Like, honestly, I developed a lot of that on my own. I was homeschooled and not to put homeschooling down because the education, in my opinion, is really superior. The social interaction aspect of it, it's not the same. Even if you have other homeschool friends You're not really dipped into society. You don't really learn what are other kids like out there that I'm going to interact with when I'm 18 and looking for a job. So like the social aspect was very different, but the education was solid. And the thing that I learned the most from my upbringing was a solid work ethic, actually, like no matter what, that's the one thing, like as mad as I get at my dad some days about, oh man, you should have done this or you should have done that or anything like that. I always thank my parents for my work ethic because they taught me to just keep going. Like, no matter how rough things are, no matter how like just obli, like just hard the world is around you, you just have to keep moving forward and focus on what you're doing and get it done. And that was that that was probably my biggest like strength I got from my parents.
0: <laughs> yeah, because like if the firewood wouldn't get chopped, I imagine y'all would be dangerous, would be dangerous. You couldn't survive, like stuff like that. Like you literally have to have a work ethic. And it's that's something that's interesting about the pioneer spirit of the American West. We're going to do things ourselves. We're going to try to fix what the 20th century did wrong. And It's a big mission, but it's like that kind of you use the term survivalist. I think that instinct philosophically connects with a lot of it. And a lot of the idea of data sovereignty with our weave and like everything like that, like with our drive, we want people to be able to have their own wallets, do it themselves. It's not like a Web2 intermediary. It's
1: here the skills. That idea of sovereignty is what really attracted me to Web3. Once I finally got into it and saw, oh, there's a lot more here than crypto. Once once I actually got into it and saw the utility of it, I was in love because I was like that right there, that's data sovereignty. Financial sovereignty, like just sovereignty across the board as far as how it functions. It's immutable. Like you don't have to worry. Like even if the SEC passes a law, it'd require everyone on the network to simultaneously follow the rules. Like it's not something they can force. So you were on a crab fishing vessel. How many years did you do that? so like physically about a year and a half i i did that actually that was around the time i met my wife which was oh eight nine years ago now i met her and i was crabbing off the coast of newport oregon and that was like a really interesting job i like as far as physical shape goes is the best shape i ever been because you had to manhandle 200 plus pounds like a hundred times a day. You had to sit there, pick it up and throw it like it was nothing. And if you didn't, people would be like, dude, move faster. So it was a very physical job. And yeah, it was a fun job. Like Great to have some experience under my belt, but not something I'd recommend to anyone as a permanent career. It literally like shaves years off your life because you don't get to sleep. You don't get to eat properly. It's terrible physically. Wow.
0: and I bet it rains and it's like you have yep. the image of... The rough sea and water. You're
1: getting soaked in salt. After a trip on the ocean, the salt like, is literally caked on your skin. You can sit there and just shave the salt off your skin because there's no showers on the boat. (laughs) So you're like, oh, it's terrible. It was terrible. What was the longest you were out? Three and a half days. Wow. And we... Slept in four hour shifts. Yeah, it was, yeah, that was what they called the crab opener. And I only did one because I started at the end of one crab season and then went through a whole nother crab season the next season. And the crab opener is this insane event where everybody overloads their boat with traps and then goes out on the water and tries to strategically launch all those crab traps as quickly as they can. And it can take two or three days to do it when you're out on the water. And it takes multiple trips back and forth to shore to reload the boat to get the traps out there. So it's this sprint basically at the beginning of the season because there's so many boats that are out there in the good spots. Like it's a sprint to get your pots out there before everybody else does. So it was just this insane adrenaline and Red Bull fueled. Let's get this done. And we're not sleeping. We're freaking Poseidon miniatures out here, demigods. (laughs) Like it was this whole like this era of just (laughs) Is it all men?
0: Or were there any women?
1: There were women in it, but honestly it was rare. Yeah. Most of the time the women worked on the docks, like wives of the fishermen and stuff. They'd be involved with all of the different businesses and everything. So there were a couple like woman captains, but I don't recall any deck hands being women.
0: Yeah. What's the average age then on a ship?
1: Oh, the, av- that depends. Like the average age for a captain was 40 to 60. The average age for a deckhand was 18 to 30. Wow. Um, So mostly younger guys ran the hard jobs on the decks because the older guys, they had done it while they were younger and been with a company or a boat for a long time and graduated to be a captain. And now they're just making their cut and and directing the younger guys what to do. So it's kind of how the hierarchy worked over time with fishing was the old deck hands that knew what they were doing and knew the water really well. They became the cat, the next generation of captains.
0: Okay. And how many people were on a boat at once?
1: Tip uh, the all the boats that we worked on. They typically had three people on a boat. They had a captain and then two deckhands, and. That was for any boat up till 65 or 70 feet long. Then once you got into the 120, 150 footers that traveled all over from like California, Oregon, they would have full crews. We had the Northwest. um, I think that was the name of the boat, but they were actually on Deadliest Catch. They docked in Oregon where we docked every once in a while. And of course their crew and their boat like dwarfed everything else at that dock because it was a massive operation.
0: On this podcast, We get a lot of people with unique experiences. I've never interviewed someone like... Who worked on a crab ship <laughs> it, it was a really unique job <laughs> and it sounds yeah and it sounds like it, it set you up for it took your communication skills dealing with teams but the, that vision of going out and throwing out the net the crab pots and and then coming back it reminds me it's kind of like altcoin season where everyone's let's go which coin's gonna pop basically
1: it's like the <laughs> it's the start of altcoin season and you're trying to get out there and grab the right pool like that's basically <laughs> how crab fishing is yes you're out you're getting out there and trying to put your pots in the right pool and like hope that they fill up yeah that's it's so similar it's a huge gamble all the fishermen were natural gamblers that was one oh. of the things because fishing is gambling like you're throwing a lure out there hoping you're in the right spot at the right time in the right place to catch that big catch and there was always only a handful of boats each year that would actually come back with a full load wow because they would get to the right spot at the right time that like the crab migrate, they migrate in like these herds. And so you'd have to just based on your knowledge of the ocean floor from years of experience, you had to try and fish certain spots, Yeah, like based on a lot like market knowledge. Oh, last bull run, this token and this token survives. So maybe they'll blow up. That's exactly how fishing was. It was like, oh, this spot last year, we got a lot of crab here, throw our pots in here because nobody else is.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting metaphor. And and I think a lot about the Manifest Destiny and the the dream of the American West. You think about a lot of the people who made their money during the gold rush, Wells Fargo with the wagons, Levi's with the jeans, the people who provided the infrastructure that allowed it to happen. So, Like the people who helped, who sell the rope or the boat, the gas for the yep. boats or whatever, those that's a constant business.
1: The people who made the money were the pickaxe sellers, not the gold, not the people mining the gold. That
0: you, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because everyone needed a pickaxe, right? And just like the people who manufacture the crab pots, everyone, you need a bunch of those. So I think about Arweave as a corollary to that because people need storage, right? We are interested in the utility and helping people have that data sovereignty and learn the skills. And it's interesting that Sarcophagus, you were saying, uses Arweave. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about that project and your capacity there and some of the use cases, if that's cool.
1: Absolutely. My capacity with Sarcophagus, I've been working with those guys for a couple of years now through the V1 launch and testing for that. And now we're like ramping up testing for V2 and launching that. But my I've always I've been doing the community management now for a while and just building around the community, helping with events, hosting AMAs, stuff like that. And I've learned a ton along the way, like about Ethereum, about R Weave. These guys have practically turned me into an R Weave maxi. That's why I did that article the other day because I've just I've fallen in love with the ecosystem. Oh yeah, over thank time. you. Oh <laughs> that was a great article. <laughs> I you know what I started writing that weeks ago and it was meant for a specific project that kind of fell through. But after that fell through, I was like, Oh, I I want to put this article out because I was like, I really want to get this out. Yeah, really blown away with the community's response on that too. I put it up, oh, this is like this article and I want to do this just to thank everyone. And yeah, the community response on that was completely unexpected and blew me away. So I appreciate the whole Rweave community on that. Good job. But so with Sarcophagus, (laughs) now that we're coming up with v 2 there's been some redesigns and stuff like that. And the storage we... I remember in V1, they were playing around with the idea that possibly storage could be expanded to Filecoin and other storage-based platforms in the future if it was desired. But through operating V1 and doing the V2 designs, like the whole community, the developers, like everyone in unison was like, no, we're just doing our weave. We don't even want the other ones that like, and that. That was just like a beautiful thing that like the V1 design used Rweave and everyone loved how it operated, how it worked for the D app and everything, the permanent data payment once, like it all worked just so well that when V2 came, everyone was just like, Nope, let's just stick with Rweave. It works great. Let's worry about if we want to do L2 contracting and stuff that cheapens up the process, stuff like that, then, you know, we'll look at stuff like that, but we're going to stick with (laughs) Rweave.
0: Maybe give us like a, a use case through which this would be used? And then we can explain the technicals.
1: Definitely. Actually, a use case I discussed with the developers recently because we were looking at a little more niche use cases, but stuff that was short term. And one thing we came up with that was really interesting was the idea of a border crossing in it, say for a journalist or someone who's doing political activism or anyone who's carrying data that they're not like sure would be allowed crossing a border. And I remember this, when I worked at Intel, one of the things we were trained on was that if you are traveling on business, you have to be very careful about the tech you carry with you. There are some countries that won't even allow certain tech. Like they they just look at it as, oh, you could possibly be transferring data across this border that we we don't want this. And I remember working there, they trained us heavily on that. They're like, if you ever go on a business trip, you have to register all of your devices that you're traveling with and register it because they can have stuff like IP and blueprints and stuff like that on it. And if you don't declare that information, it can be confiscated if they figure it out. And of course, every country is different. This is just kind of niche use cases. But the thought was, say you're coming to a border crossing or something like that. And you're not really sure you're like, okay, I've got this data on my PC. I don't really know what they're going to do. This data doesn't seem harmful to me, but I'd like to safeguard it just in case. So in that instance, people can upload this data to the weave, get it wrapped in encryption. So no one else can see it and then set that dead man switch so that set it for, oh, you're about to cross the border. So set it for an hour in the future. And then an hour later, if you haven't responded to that switch because your devices were taken or something happens, that data is then made available to a designated recipient address that you could have that's safe, like one that maybe was on a different device or on your phone or or some other device that is safe to access it from after you've crossed the border. That way, if your stuff's confiscated, it's permanently on weave. it's encrypted, and only the recipient you designate can actually get to it in the circumstance that you need it. Otherwise, once you're done crossing that border, you can actually do what's called burying the sarcophagus, mm. which keeps it wrapped in encryption on our weave so no one can see it. So if you're like, no, I don't need this data. I just, I don't want to pay the fees or, or something along those lines. You can just bury it permanently and then you don't have to worry about anyone seeing it or anything like that because it just stays encrypted.
0: Okay. Okay. So let's say, so hypothetically, if you were a journalist and you went to Afghanistan and you took some videos you uploaded them through sarcophagus, you cross through and but you didn't make it. So someone would get an email to link to those videos, like the transaction on our weave.
1: We don't have the email notification set up yet, but that is something we're actually working on right now. We're looking at ways to create notifications, whether it's like a toast message. We've also discussed creating a integration with Google Calendar, where when you create your sarcophagus, It it sends just a little like message that you can click OK and it just adds it to your calendar because then what that allows you to do is just share that with whoever your recipient is and be like, here's the date and time of resurrection if I don't rewrap at this point and here's the instructions because something else that the tomb is going to do is say you go in there, you wrap your data And you create a new wallet, say, because the tomb will have the ability to create a new recipient. If You don't already have one and you want to create a wallet that's new, unused, on-chain, then it has a wallet generator. And what it'll do for you is say, you're like, oh, I don't know my recipient's address, but I do, I can create this wallet and then send them the info for it. So what it lets you do is you go in, you wrap your sarcophagus and you select, oh, I want to create a new wallet, a new recipient wallet. So it generates one for you, and then it creates a PDF that has all of the onboarding abilities that MetaMask have built in. So it gives you your private key, your seed phrase, and even a QR code on this PDF. This is the recipient wallet information. This will be optional. So if somebody doesn't want to create that PDF, like if they're afraid they're not going to be able to store it securely or get it to a recipient securely, they don't have to create that. But this is an option so that you can have a form of like automation there so that you can just give that PDF to the recipient and be like, hey, store this somewhere safe. This is access info for a sarcophagus that I created that is going to you should something happen to me. And you can also put more instructions in the sarcophagus with your data. So if somebody gets that, they're able to understand, oh, I got all this data and here's the instructions of what it's for, what it goes to. So there's a ton of like options there on what type of data you put in. We've even been discussing looking at having the data itself wrapped in a sarcophagus trigger other contracts external to the tomb so something I was talking about with them the other day was like something simple like a sweeper contract like say you're trying to pass all your assets on to someone who's very minimal in blockchain like they they understand like metamask or some basics or maybe they only have a coinbase but that is your option. Say so you have this wide range of ERC-20 tokens or tokens in some wallet, like this contract could really be on any blockchain. Then what would happen is the data, in like you could set up a contract with a sweeper. So say, oh, your DMS triggers it and then the data releases. This contract watches that sarcophagus, sees the data release, decrypts it and gets the data from within the Sarko and that data gives it what it needs to finish its contract operation, which would be sweeping the contents of a wallet into one major coin, Weaver, whatever wallet it is you're sweeping all the tokens out of into that one token and then transfer it to a recipient. So there's so many different tandem use cases that we can use with this mechanism. And that's where we're really trying to dive in is stuff like getting it built into other applications, because most people have used a dead man switch in their life without even realizing that like anyone who's ever used a pusher riding lawnmower has interacted with a dead man switch and probably didn't know it. The handle on a push lawnmower is a dead man switch trigger. You have to physically stay interacting with that trigger. And if you ever let go of the handle, the mower kills its power and shuts off. That's a dead man switch. Same mm. with the riding lawnmower. It has one under the seat. So these are common applications for a DMS that most people use and don't even know about. And that's a lot of how we want to approach the market with our DMS as well is we wanna be an immutable thing that people can build into other apps. So say you're signing into your email or something, this email provider could have a backend DMS built in that if you don't sign in for six months, it automatically triggers an email notification to a different email address or something saying, hey, this email is dead. We don't know if you have access. There's so many different tandem things that can be built off of this DMS trigger that we're really excited about like expanding on. Dude, that's
0: wild. I never thought about that. Like, it's kind of, yeah, the invisible tech where that we talk about on the RCAS, like Web3's road to mass adoption is people, when people don't realize it's used invisible.
1: The first version, the wallets that all of the data is going to be connected to for unwrapping and everything will be like, will be an Ethereum or EVM hosted wallet. The first version is going to be Ethereum. So all the data will be stored on are we, but the contract operations that control the dead man switch, the encryption, that part is on Ethereum. And so is the network operation, the, um, the, embol- the sorry, not the embalmers, the archeologist nodes, Okay, they will operate mainly on Ethereum and they provide a key for encryption on the second layer of the encryption key of the sarcophagus. <laughs> and then the person who
0: receives it has access to the data because they have the seed phrase. Yes. Yeah, it's really a great use case. It's really a great technology because it's, I've never heard of anything like this before. And it's, and I guess the key is you, if you're sending it to yourself or the person who's getting it needs to understand what they're getting. Cause you can't just, you couldn't like tip off, Meet the media to something if they didn't know it was coming? Cause it might be like, what the heck is this?
1: My understanding is the way it works is the, all of the gas is handled upfront by the embalmer on the contract. Right. And mainly what happens is they supply the data, it gets encrypted, that encryption key gets encrypted again and again, so that it is safe on chain and no one can access it until the DMS triggers. But that packet, that encrypted packet, all the encryption and the contract triggers are done on Ethereum, and then that packet is placed through Bundler on Arweave. So Bundler really actually acts a lot as a chain link there for us because Bundler has easily been is easily integratable to different chains. So like it was really easy for us to create the integration with e- with the Ethereum chain so that the contract executions for the DApp all work on chain there, but then the data packets themselves are stored on Arweave. Then, when a recipient comes in they don't have to pay any gas or anything my understanding is basically they just need a basic ethereum wallet so that they can say here i have the key and then all of that encryption and everything is like all the gas is already paid and whatnot so they can just grab the data from it without having to pay any fees or anything like that and the wallet the recipient key is an ethereum recipient key so they have like their ethereum wallet and their private key that they can sign the encryption with to decrypt it and get that data packet exposed. Yes, only the recipient has that inner encryption layer key. Yeah. And there is, we've definitely explored some public, some publishing type of situations too. Like for journalists, for it's, for instance, like you could write up an article and put it in the tomb with a published date of a certain time, which would be the DMS trigger time. And you could publish the recipient key publicly. So once that DMS triggers that information or data actually becomes public. So in that way, the dead man switch could be used kind of like they did with like they were talking about with John McAfee, where they're like, oh, to protect himself, he created this DMS with a bunch of data. And there's a lot of mystery surrounding that still. But, but the concept is something that's totally doable with this is you can put that data in there as a safeguard. And then if something happens to you, it gets publicly released. No, I did. we've thought of some really crazy use cases because really all we're building is a safety mechanism that it's really up to the user how they apply it. it it's just, it's a safety switch. And, if, and there are a lot of crazy use cases we've thought of where people could apply it. And not all of them are things that people want, but it's just how technology and open source goes. Like you build the tech and you can't really control how people use it. You can just make sure that the tech is solid and that it serves its purpose properly. You can look at stuff like Silk Road. Silk Road was a really big deal. And in my mind, one of the earliest like concepts of this open source decentralization actually being like put out in the world where it's, oh, you can go here and sell whatever you want anonymously. And that, of course, it got shut down and the guy who made it got villainized and everything. But I look at that and go, that's really not a whole lot different than what we're doing here. We're building this technology that enables people to do what they want with some anonymity, with some sovereignty. I think now it's just hit a point where so many people support that concept, support that idea of having some self-sovereignty and freedom. That even the government at this point realizes they're like stepping in hot water if they just try to shut down. Because so many people are behind it now. We hit over a 2 trillion market cap this last bull cycle, and that's not small, at least not anymore. So I think that's part of the whole thing is like, when we're considering all this is like, there is some risk involved, but we just have to look at what we're doing and go, yes, we're building technology. We're making sure it works properly. It's immutable. It protects people. If people want to use it for political activist reasons or journalism or anything like that, like really, that's great. We know that the tool is getting used like how it was meant to. Yes.
0: Maybe we could end if you're down. I thought the story of how you met your wife is a good, is a cool, is a cute one. All
1: right. Yeah, I I like telling this story. My wife, when she met me, I was crab fishing and I was dirty and living on a boat. And I liked to go to bars and cuss a lot. That was something actually I meant to mention to you earlier when you're like, yeah, you have to work on social interaction on the boat. I wanted to stop you there and be like, man, being on the boat didn't do nothing for my social skills. All it did was teach me how to cuss properly. But yeah, when my wife met me, I was she was with some friends at this bar called Moby Dick's. And I was singing karaoke, singing Forgot About Dre, because I was all about car- going out and drinking and do karaoke. I still miss it. like I haven't done karaoke in a minute, but I've been meaning to get out and do it again because I like singing. And uh, <laughs> I like having a couple beers and getting up there on stage and singing. But yeah, I was rapping. And the funny part of it was like I remember being on stage and you know, looking out at the crowd while I'm doing it and everything and seeing her and she was like laughing and smiling and look at me. So in my head, I'm like, Oh, you should go say hi to this girl. She seems nice. Go say hi to this girl. It turns out that they were actually like making fun of me. And like, I walked up and said hi and everything. And they were like actively making fun of me. So it was funny. We ended up married and everything. And we got two kids now, but yeah, our meeting story was always a funny thing.
0: <laughs> what that What do you say to somebody you hate? <laughs> Anyone trying to bring trouble your way? Want to resolve things in a
1: bloody way? Just study a tape of NWA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I still got
0: it. <laughs> sarcophagus has got the wrapped information, and Johnny's got the raps.
1: That was why I did that one because I knew that song so well that I could do it without looking at the prompt. And I remember I, I was such a little show off. I would turn my back to the prompt and sit there and sing, looking up at the ceiling, so that people would know I knew the words to the song. I was <laughs>
0: I thought, I think it's really cool how all the terminology, like the archaeologists, what were some of the other terms you were using that were like?
1: Archaeologists, curse, corpse, wrapped, rewrapped, mummified. There's with all of the old Egyptian mummification process, embalming process. That was what they went with because for the original design with it being complicated, they were trying to relate the different steps of the process to how you would mummify a corpse. And a lot of people watched the mummy growing up. So everybody knows what a mummy is, right? That, oh yeah, they like scrambled their brains. That was the original concept, and it worked really well having that storyboarding there to go with how the flow works. But for V two, it's gotten like just a skosh more complicated. And so for the light paper we're designing right now, we're still using all that terminology, but we're trying to throw in some simplifications of just like plain speak. Of oh, this is a node that we call an archaeologist and just like giving people a little more upfront definitions so that they're not like so the embalmer wraps the corpse and it is unwrapped by the archaeologist in the future when the dead man switch goes off if you completely stick to the terminology people are like what
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah because people are (laughs) fluid enough now with but i think it's cool that certain terms that are like proprietary to the technology this is another connection i made the first emojis were hieroglyphics right
1: <laughs> oh yeah yeah the eye of horus the
0: <laughs> yeah like the symbols that were easy to recognize so it's like
1: this was the first dab this was the first dabs yeah <laughs> thank
0: you <laughs> yeah like language it's all circular that's kind of my point, like things go in circles and you're communicating and you're on the forefront. And I think you're a very interesting dude. And yeah, it's honored honor to have you on, Johnny. And we'll definitely keep following you and all your other projects. Awesome. So thank you for your time.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, man. This has been a great conversation. I've had a blast.
0: <laughs> great interview. What a cool guy. Thank you, Johnny Ringo. Be sure to join us for our Twitter Spaces community call on Friday, January 20th. And until then, stay tuned for more content. Check out our Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, all that. And we'll see you on the permaweb. Know before you stow.